Good morning, everyone. Welcome to La Jolla Community Church. Welcome to the 945 service. <laughs> Would you stand with us if you're able? We're going to spend some time worshiping through song this morning. This is my story. 
Great to remind us of that this morning. Welcome to the Holy Community Church. So glad you're here. Would you take a moment, greet each other now? And students, would you follow this big guy, Ryan, over here? Have a great time. Well, good morning, good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? Welcome to the 9 a.m. service. Just kidding, it's daylight savings time. <laughs> well, good morning, my name is Ian O'Meara. I'm the director of Community Life. If you have your bulletins, go ahead, grab those right now. Thank you, Stan. If you flip to the inside cover, you'll see our prayer and connection card. Our values here are we are rooted in prayer, and we know that we are better together as the body of Christ. So we spend about 10 to 15 seconds every Sunday just to fill those out, just so we can connect. Just if you have a small prayer request or a large one, take the time to fill it out. We'd love to pray for you. So we're going to take the next 10 to 15 seconds. There's a pen in the seat back in front of you. Thank you for taking the time to fill those out. If you're still filling them out, uh, keep going. The, the ushers will come by after the, the sermon, and you can put those in the offering basket. And as a note, we're going to have a prayer event here next Sunday after the second service called Rooted in Prayer. It's one of our values. It's going to be led by our own uh, Laura Georgia Caucus, who's an author and a speaker, and Kathy Hunt. She does the prayers for the people. We're gonna, it's going to be a great event, so come. If it's a, we're going to have lunch there, so if you want to RSVP, go to our website and get more information, or you can come see me after the service. 
Well, we have a couple great announcements, so buckle on your seatbelt because we have a lot coming at you this next coming months. Today is our membership class. If you haven't had that step of faith and becoming a member here or just interested to say, what does it mean to be a member of church? This is the class for you. It's going to be right after the second service today. It's going to have some uh, food to snack on. Pastor Steve's going to be there. We're going to have a conversation about what does it mean to be a member of this church. And with that, in our second announcement, we have our Board of Trustees nominations. If you look in your bulletin, you'll see this little sheet. This is our Board of uh, Trustees nomination form. And one of the requirements for being uh, one of the board members is um, being a member of this church. So if you're interested or you know someone that you think would be worthy of that position, go ahead and make sure they get to that class today because this is a key component. But the being part of the board is like the highest part of servant leadership in this church. They're involved in what this church's mission and vision looks like and how we execute it here in the UTC area. Our third announcement, the women's retreat. How many ladies do we have here this morning? You're awful silent. Just me over here. <laughs> we have our spring women's retreat. It's called Fixer Upper. Now, Pastor Steve's not really a big fan of that, but I think it's more for the women for their husbands. It's a, he's a fixer-upper. You need to come get equipped. No, it's going to be a great event. It's going to be up at Forest Home. If you want more information, you can go to our website. You can come see me, and I'll direct you to the sign-up sheet. But that's going to be April 5th through 7th. Our final announcement is save the date. April 13th is our Easter block party. Last year, we had over 700 people from our community grace our campus, and they got to just experience what La Jolla Community Church is about. So we, this is an event that's driven by volunteers. We need Easter eggs and candies. We need people here doing all different types of things. Had some people this morning when they heard about it, like, here, sign me up for my position last year because I absolutely love that. So this is an all-congregation event. If you want more information, you can go to our website on any of these announcements, or you can see me after the service. I'd like to welcome up Pastor Steve Murray. Well, good morning, and uh, today we're starting a, a new sermon series uh, in First Peter. Uh, if you've never read the book of First Peter, hopefully by the time we're done with this, you'll have a, a, a better idea of what the early church was dealing with. Uh, so uh, we've, we're calling this series Running Life's Rapids. We're using that as a metaphor that gives us a chance to look creatively at, at some of the challenges that, that Peter describes in his letter, and, and maybe... Uh, be able to to see how that would, it, it, you know, relate to our world, and uh, we're using that metaphor of uh, running life's rapids. So, by the way, how many of you have ever run the rapids? How many of you have ever been in a, a raft or a kayak? Or okay, so we have a bunch of experts here, and uh, <laughs> uh, so this will this hopefully this will be helpful to you. Um, let me give you a, a snapshot of Peter. Uh, when you read the, the, the New Testament, you see some things about Peter, but it might surprise you how many things you already know about Peter that I want to remind you of. First of all, uh, he's referred to with four different names uh, in the Bible. Simon Bar-Jonah would be his formal name, Simon, son of Jonah. We would say in our vernacular, Simon Johnson, basically that would come out. Uh, Simeon, uh, Kepha, or, or Kephas, and then Petros. Uh, those are the four names you'll see him referred to. Uh, he was married, maybe you didn't know that, married with children, um, brother to Andrew, born in a small town called Bethsaida. If you look at the Sea of Galilee, that, that uh, body of water in the north of Israel, the very top there uh, where the water comes in from draining from Mount Hermon, there's a town called Bethsaida. And if you go this way, uh, west uh, from there, uh, there's a town called Capernaum where he lived. 
That's where Jesus lived there as well. Uh, he was a fisherman, as you know that probably. But uh, think of it this way. He was a small business owner. You can't fish all year round in the Sea of Galilee. Uh, you could, but you only catch fish several months of the year. And so what are you doing the rest of the year? <clears throat> You're moving people back and forth across the lake. At the time that Peter lived, the Sea of Galilee was an incredibly well-developed area. If you go there now, uh, you might say, wow, there's a lot of room, a lot of undeveloped land. At that time, it was a thriving, thriving part of Israel uh, as it is becoming more and more today. And it's drop-dead beautiful. I mean, if you were to drive around there uh, right now, uh, you wouldn't be here, just to point that out to you. But um, <laughs> uh, if you did, you would think you were in Ireland. It is so green. It's so beautiful. Right now, the, the mustard plants are growing everywhere, bright yellow, these red anemones everywhere. It's just drop-dead beautiful. You'd think, if, you, if your idea of Israel is sand dunes and camels, um, you need to revise your idea of what Israel looks like. It is just really, really beautiful. So that's where he lived um, as a businessman, small business owner, in partnership with his brother Andrew and two local guys, John and James, whose father was Zebedee, so they're uh, the Zebedee brothers. Uh, Peter was initially a disciple of, of uh, John the Baptist. That's how he met Jesus, uh, John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer, Jesus' cousin. Uh, and so he, he, John the Baptist, is announcing, hey, the kingdom of God is, is entering in a big way. Uh, pay attention. And so these guys like James and John and Peter and others were hanging out with John the Baptist, and they met Jesus. And then they developed a relationship with Jesus, who eventually calls his disciples together. And it seems a bit abrupt when you're reading the New Testament, and <laughs> Jesus walks up to Peter and goes, uh, come with me. And drop your nets and come with me. Matthew's in his little tax collector office, and he, uh, come with me. It seems like that's kind of odd. Uh, really what it, 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 it shows is the culmination of, of a relationship that was developing. And so really it was more like, now we're ready. Now's the day. Come on. So they were ready to follow him. And it turns out that Peter, uh, as described in the New Testament, was one of Jesus' closest friends. Think about that. Hanging out with Jesus. Amazing uh, to think about that. And uh, now when you think about Jesus, the description and, and you know, everything we know about Jesus and everything we know about Peter, you would not put them together. Uh, this is like the odd couple, right? You know, uh, that play by Neil Simon. Two guys that don't necessarily go together, uh, living in close proximity. And so in some ways we have a bit of a caricature of Peter, uh, that he was this uh, bumptious, impetuous, you know, uh, ready, fire, aim kind of a guy, which misses the point that he was an amazing guy, and to the point that, that Jesus saw in him uh, high capacity for significant leadership. Uh, and so uh, we're going to be looking at some of that as we go through this series. But he was the first to recognize that Jesus was the Messiah. He was expecting the kingdom of God to break in in a fresh way, and as he walked with Jesus, he realized, I get it. I get who you are. He pledged his life to Jesus. He said, you know, if anybody else is going to, to desert you, I'll be there for you. And, and the, we know the pain of that is that he set himself up for something he couldn't fulfill. At one point, Jesus said to Peter, you know, you will be sifted like wheat. And at one point, he got very specific and said, you know, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Uh, there's even a church now called St. Peter in Galicantu. Uh, St. Peter and the rooster crowed. How would you like that? You know, <laughs> oh gosh, you know, you going to church? Yeah, I'm going to go. Oh, it's named after you. That's right. St. Peter. And, oh, you're the, yeah, you're the guy. Well, so horrible, horrible situation. And yet Jesus restores him in a very beautiful way. We see this at the end of John's gospel. 
he preached the first sermon. In a sense, I can empty a room of 3,000 people. Jesus filled a room with 3,000 people. I mean, Peter did in this first sermon on what was called uh, Pentecost, still it was called Pentecost. And, and all of a sudden, he's the guy, he's the, he's the mouthpiece, the face of the church, one of the great uh, sermons of all time. Uh, he was the first follower of Jesus to baptize Gentiles. Now think about that. We think, well, yeah, of course, uh, Gentiles. That's, it was the promise of God to Abram to bless all nations. And yet, in the first century, a Jew was not thinking about blessing anybody. Can we just get rid of these Gentiles? Can we just get Rome and everybody else out of here? And so here's Peter confronted by the Lord in a vision saying, hey, I want you to reach out beyond your comfort zone. And as he has his vision, he also, a messenger shows up and says, a guy named Cornelius up the coast in Caesarea, on the, in this beautiful place on the coast, Herod built this magnificent community, drop-dead beautiful, and it became the center for Roman power in all Israel. And a major Roman officer invites Peter to come tell him about Jesus. So Peter is the guy that goes up and, and, and shares the gospel with this Roman soldier, a centurion, and his family, who all come to faith and are baptized by Peter. Peter, the fisherman from Galilee, is now, in a sense, insinuating himself into the Roman Empire. And woe to the Roman Empire, uh, because they have no idea of what's coming. Uh, he, was the first, uh, he did the first miracle that we know about. Uh, where he and, he and John are walking out of the temple, and he sees a guy begging. He says, silver or gold have I none, but what I have I give you. Get up and walk. Uh, he confronted uh, the most powerful body, political body in Israel, the Sanhedrin, when he stood up, and they said, you have to stop talking about Jesus. And he said, well, let me put it this way to you guys. Is it better for me to obey you or to God, to obey God? So he, he had this boldness uh, because he was so convinced of who Jesus was, having known him, having failed him, and having been restored by him. Uh, he was the first leader of the Jerusalem church. Then he became a missionary into Syria, went to a place called Antioch in Syria, and, and was uh, a, a major leader up there. So he had an incredible uh, run uh, of leadership, so much so that uh, Jesus had called him early on the rock, Petros. On this rock I will build my church. You'll have the keys to the kingdom. Uh, where that went uh, is any, it, it's, it's a debate. Uh, we see the model and, 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 and really the first pope. It becomes irrelevant. He was the best version of Peter he could have ever hoped to be. Uh, and he influenced so many other leaders. He wrote first and second Peter, probably dictated to Mark, who was his disciple, who also, Mark, wrote the gospel of Mark, which is really Peter's gospel, uh, Mark writing it. Peter, we think, uh, from, from Roman sources, we know this, not from the Bible, that he was, he was uh, uh, executed by Nero in 64 AD, uh, felt unworthy to be crucified like Jesus, so he was crucified upside down. So again, that's not from the Bible, that comes from other, uh, from Suetonius and other, other writers. Uh, basically, he was the most revered disciple of Jesus. In every list, ancient list uh, printed uh, of the disciples, Peter's always at the top. So uh, Peter is somebody that we, like Mary, the mother of Jesus, we should take very seriously uh, and emulate enthusiastically. One of the great things about Peter, that, that profile of him, and there's so much more detail we can fill in, is that he's very relatable. You can see yourself doing everything Peter did. If you're honest with yourself, you can see yourself doing everything Peter did. And uh, here's the one who then writes uh, in, in, his, in his letters to people who didn't know Jesus, 
who are not Jewish are Gentiles. He says, you know, we, we share a common faith. We share my faith and yours. Your faith is as precious as mine. So he had this incredible humility uh, packaged in this guy who was willing to be a go-for-it, step-up, and, and step-out kind of a guy. So uh, 1 Peter, uh, this first of two letters by him, tells us how the gospel works in real life. Uh, and, and the way the gospel works in real life is, is challenging. Uh, if you went to Forest Home at some point as a kid or as an adult and, and became a follower of Jesus, you had a euphoric experience probably saying, finally, I get it, I, I understand. If you were at a Young Life camp as a high school kid and you came to know Christ at that camp, if you had somebody make a big impact on you and lead you to Jesus at any point in your life, you said, oh my gosh, like this, my, my, my vision is opened up to a larger world. You know then that that is going to be challenged, and that's what Peter wants us to know that our faith will be challenged. That's why we're calling this series Running the Rapids of Life. Because you immediately hit white water and you wonder, am I going to survive this ride? Uh, and so the power of what Peter does is shows us from a very Jewish perspective uh, that how all nations are going to be blessed by God um, and shows us how the gospel works in real life. So uh, if I had time, I'd walk you through this in more detail. But this map shows... Uh, Part of the ancient world, specifically the big land mass, is what we would call Turkey. In the first century, this was not called Turkey. This was just a series of Roman provinces. Rome owned and controlled this. The original Hittite people uh, were subjugated. Now, everybody who goes there is, is under the thumb or under the, the authority of Rome. And so Peter is writing this letter to these, these churches. If you went through, the, if you looked at some of the details here, you'd say, oh my gosh, a place like Laodicea, I've heard that mentioned. Antioch, okay, a different Antioch. Ephesus, a Pergamum. Some of these are, are places mentioned in the book of Revelation. So all, the, all those seven churches in Revelation, for the most part, are in this area. And so, so this is a Roman province with people who uh, are Jews primarily, he's writing to, and also some Gentiles. Three terms I want to throw out for you uh, so that as we read through the text, you have some kind of context. The first phrase that you're going to hit uh, is God's elect. God's elect. What does it mean to talk about God's elect? This touches on that whole issue of predestination, which is gives you a headache, uh, trying to make sense of it, because it's such a big uh, idea that God in his sovereignty gets to choose who's in his kingdom. And the way that we as rational human beings try to make sense of it sometimes leads to conclusions. You go, really, seriously? God chooses some people to know him, some people not to know him? Really? Uh, maybe. But, but let's back up from that. Simply to say this, uh, those whom God in his sovereignty, grace and love, invites and accepts into his kingdom become God's elect. Simply stated, it's about God. To, for us to push it and try to define it ever even more closely than that puts us into territory where we might see things that don't adequately represent God. You follow me? So if anybody wants to embroil you in a debate or, or, or heated discussion about predestination, all you have to say is this. You know, I think one thing we can agree on is that you're annoying. No, no, I mean, um, <clears throat> if there's one thing we can both agree on is that God is sovereign. And leave it at that. God in his sovereignty invites and accepts people into his kingdom. But for him doing that, nobody, no one ever would have access to God or his kingdom. So that's our confidence in God's invitation and God's willing to accept us. Then the elect self-identify by receiving God's love and grace, putting their trust and faith in him. You see the difference there? It's about God inviting and accepting. 
It's not about my faith controlling God. My decision controlling God. Do you and I have a decision? Yes, we do. But it's always in response to God's initiative, God's invitation, under God's sovereignty. And so putting these ideas together uh, it, it can be brain uh, damaging in a sense that it's, you bump into these antonyms, things that don't seem to go together. God is all sovereign. We have a choice. Those, are, those, those don't necessarily mesh very well. Which is it? So God in his sovereign grace invites and accepts us into his kingdom. And then as we, self, we self-identify as God's elect by saying, I'm in. I, I, I have trusted and believe in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Think of Abram, the great patriarch of the faith, through whom all the promises of God were given, right? To bless all nations. It said, Abram trusted God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. He didn't earn it. He didn't deserve it. It was God saying, I will, I will count you as righteous for trusting in me. And so, you know, um, <clears throat> John writes later in one of his letters, uh, 1 John, we see it in chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. This is the testimony, truth. God has given us eternal life. God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. You see how it beautifully puts together God's sovereignty and our response to it. So that's the first, the first big term. The second term he uses is exiles. Exiles. This is a horrible term. To be in exile is not a pleasant experience. Uh, being barred from one's native country, typically for political or punitive reasons. An exile is one who is driven out against their will. An exile is not an immigrant, either an immigrant leaving or an immigrant coming in. They have been pushed out by force. And so these people to whom Peter is writing have experienced exile. This is not a metaphor for, gee, I'm yearning for heaven. There's metaphorical implications to that. We all can say, I'm an exile. I'm a stranger in a strange land. But ultimately, this is really about people in exile saying, how did I get here? And what am I supposed to do now that I'm here? Related to it is this term foreigner, uh, which is a cultural, linguistic, ethnic, racial, tribal, or religious non-native treated as an outsider and vulnerable to ostracism and abuse. Again, not a world traveler, not a visitor with you know, the means to go home, uh, not a person curious about a new culture, but a person who has been forced out, and now they're saying, okay, here I am, what do I do? Uh, if, you have, if you can't relate to this, think about this. If you've ever been in a country, especially if you were a kid, and somebody said, let me help you master the language. They teach you some words. And they say, yeah, in fact, test them out on that lady over there. Hey, better yet, test them out on that police officer over there. You walk up and you go, blah, blah, blah. And they go, ah! You know, and you find out later you've just given the worst words in the language, you know, uh, out, uh, to this person. Uh, we're talking about exiles and foreigners, people in a very, very difficult situation uh, with multiple layers of uh, complexity. That's, that's the context for the letter. So here we are, First Peter uh, 1, 1, 2, 5. Um, it's a, it's a, there's a, a, an opening, salutation, then there's this long blessing, one long run-on sentence um, that describes why Peter is writing and the context within which he is writing. It's a bigger, bigger perspective than the people to whom he is writing currently have, all right? So he, he identifies himself, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect. Hey, I know what that means, right? Exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. If we went back to the map, you'd see that the, the guy who took this letter from Peter and, de, and delivered it, 
a guy named Silvanus. He's mentioned in the letter. He starts in Pontus at the top of the map, and he goes in a circle and hits all those cities, all those places, regions, really. And he comes back full circle. So he starts in Pontus and goes to Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. These were all provinces under the whole Roman scheme of things in what we know as modern-day Turkey. He describes them, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. He just invoked a Trinitarian formula, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father, the Spirit, the Son. So this idea of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is already emerging as a way of understanding the fullness of what Jesus is, what he represents for Israel. You follow me on that? So if anybody ever says to you, when they knock on your door, and you open the door thinking it's a FedEx guy, and you go, oh. And the guy says, can we talk a little bit about uh, what I believe? And, and, you know, the Trinity is never mentioned in the Bible. You, go, you know, you're absolutely right. However, let me point out to you in First Peter what the Trinity is. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So that's a context. He's, he's giving all the firepower right up front. By the way, you might be exiles, but you are God's elect. And here's the context. It's what the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are doing. The one God. Shema Israel, Ha'adonai Echad. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God is one. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So grace and peace be yours in abundance, he says. I, I want to linger for a moment. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Can you imagine every recipient, every church that's reading it, every family that gets to hear it, saying, if only that were the case. Wow, wouldn't that be great? Love the thought. Don't really experience that in my day-to-day -day world. But again, Peter's saying, this is who you are. This is what you have. He's reframing it for them. By the way, you have... God funding everything you need through his grace and, uh, and his peace. And so he reminds them that, that who they are in Christ and what they bring in Jesus' name because very quickly, these recipients of the letter are going to realize, oh my gosh, he's writing to us, but it's not just about us. God has a larger plan. Do you know that every time God works, he's always got a larger plan than we understand? If he's working in you, you can always be assured he's working around you and perhaps in you and through you. He wants to do a work in you. He wants to do a work through you. So everything that, that counts as our day-to-day -day world is included in what God is doing to redeem the world. None of us live in isolation, though we believe as rugged individualists, i.e. as Americans, that the entire universe revolves around us. But if we stop long enough, we realize, like that first line of that wonderful book, The Purpose Driven Life says, it's not about you, but it includes you. You're essential to what God is doing, but it's not about you. It's about his work in the world that includes you. So he goes on to say then, in this long, un unbroken sentence in Greek, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Uh, we baptized a, a week or so ago in the Jordan River, a bunch of people, and uh, one of those people baptized was, said, I, I grew up Jewish, <clears throat> and I'm here to be baptized and confess my faith in Jesus Christ because of the resurrection of Jesus. And so this is the power of what Peter is invoking, primarily writing to Jews who 
who understand that the resurrection of Jesus has made everything possible and everything different. And so this is an inheritance, she says, that can never perish, spoil, or fade. It doesn't get old, it doesn't go bad, and, and nobody can take it from you. So this inheritance, he says, is kept in heaven for you. Nobody can get at it, but God delivers it to you from the sovereignty of his kingdom. Nobody can rob you of this. If you want, you can give it away in a sense that you let it go and, 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 and ignore it, but it's available to you, he says. It's kept in heaven, who through faith are shielded by God's power. A crazy thought if you're going through horrible circumstances. Yes, some shielding. Right. God is working in you, even in the most dire circumstances, to accomplish his purposes in you and through you. Don't see this as a burden. See this as an opportunity to be part of what God is doing to reach people who desperately need him. This becomes the ultimate sacrificial perspective in life. Not to be a martyr or a doormat, or, you know, abuse me, but to say, I wonder how God wants to use me. And even use this horrible situation that makes me, you know, uh, lose perspective. Because he says, ultimately, it's going to be revealed at just the right time. In all this, he says in verse 6, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, longer than you think you like, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Most assuredly, they have, and they will. He says, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result that your troubles and your travails ultimately will result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. How is Jesus Christ revealed? Through you. Through you. How do we know that? What did Jesus say? You'll do greater things even than I, and you will be my disciples. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And remember, I will be with you always. The big reveal, that following the big reveal of God himself coming into the world, Jesus, crucified, dead, buried, ascended into heaven, promising to return again, says, I will reveal everything I'm doing through people who trust me. Is that a heavy burden to bear? Yeah, if you think it's just up to you. But is it an incredible gift to receive and then to extend to others? Yeah, if you believe that God himself is making that possible. So you see, Peter is changing their thinking by reminding them who they are and for what purpose God has allowed them to be exiled as foreigners into this inhospitable place that for them represents the uttermost parts of the world. So Jesus is revealed by people alive in him as his witnesses. So though you have not seen him, it says in verse 8, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We are receiving, to the degree that we're open and responsive to it, everything God wants to give us. What gets in the way? Our capacity. If you say, no, I will not receive it, I will not respond to it, you starve yourself spiritually. And you might spend an entire life saying, I believe in Jesus, but you say, but I've never really experienced much of that. You're like the person who says, I've been playing guitar 30 years. And when you listen to them play guitar, you say, seriously? Really? It sounds like you've been playing for three weeks. Well, yeah, because I learned all these three chords the first three weeks. I've been doing them for 30 years. You go, ah, oh, your capacity has not increased or expanded. 
And so, yeah, it's possible to quench the spirit. That's why the Bible says don't quench the spirit. Don't limit what God can do in you because he wants to increase your capacity. And how does he increase our capacity? He allows us to experience him in every possible human situation. He doesn't remove us from human situations. He allows us to fully experience human situations. Nothing any human being can experience in terms of trials and temptations will escape you. Don't treat it as, well, Lord, I thought you were for me. Because if God was to speak to you audibly, he would say, of course I'm for you, and better yet, I'm with you. I'm in you. I'm working through you. Pay attention. Very powerful, very shocking, though. Because really, when I became a Christian, I thought, man, life is going to be so awesome now. It's, it'll be a life of leisure and luxury because the God of the universe is, is going to protect me from every bad thing that could possibly happen. And then, to my dismay and chagrin, but ultimately, I started to see it as a gift. Oh, my gosh, this means that God is actually going to be with me in every life circumstance. Every circumstance that I would inevitably go through is now going to be different because he is with me. It was a lady who was experiencing uh, death. She was dying. She knew she was dying. And when Francis Collins, the great scientist at that time, a physician, um, now the mapper of the human genome, one of the greatest scientists of our time, uh, sat with this lady who was dying, and she said to him, so tell me about your understanding of life and death. And he goes, uh, well, I don't know. And her composure, her confidence in Christ, her capacity to say, and so here's where I am in the Lord. It, it, it upended his world. You see the power of that? It's not wishful thinking. It's not a, putting a happy face on difficult circumstances. It's saying, you know, but for God, I would be in, I'd be in utter despair right now. But because of God, I know I'm in his utter care right now. So here we are. You're receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We're growing into that. We're receiving it day in and day out, year in and year out. And so concerning the salvation, he goes on to say that the prophets looked at this. The prophets who spoke to their own people in their own time were also thinking, hey, this is for other people, though, too. I wonder what's going to happen. So here's these people in, in uh, the Roman province of, of uh, now what we call Turkey. He's saying, you know what? What you're going on, uh, what you're going through, is part of God's culminating plan that's been going on for a very long time. The prophets even anticipated this, though they didn't know what the details, details would look like. If they could, these people receiving the letters, if they could have gone back several hundred years at least to talk to Jeremiah and, and, and another 150 years past Jeremiah to talk to Isaiah and said, here's what we're going through. What do you think about that? These prophets could have said, oh my gosh, I was wondering what God was going to do with all this. I'm so happy to hear that. They're like, what do you mean you're happy to hear it? We're miserable. We're having a horrible time. Yeah, yeah, so did we. But wasn't it, wasn't it awesome that we were able to speak God's words to people at just the critical time and that those words have now come to their fullest fruition in you? Powerful. And so it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. This is bigger than us and involves us in ways that we never imagined. He goes on to say in 13, therefore with minds that are alert, fully sober, fully aware of the reality that you're facing, not in denial, not in a blame, not in a trying to escape and saying, this is it. What does God want to do in the midst of this horrifically difficult situation that we can't seem to solve uh, with our natural capacities? Set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed in his coming. 
As obedient children, the word obedience means to listen. As children listening to their loving father, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Don't go back thinking it was so much better back then. This is what Israel did in the Exodus. As they're facing the wilderness, they're going, I think maybe that whole slave thing was way better than I thought it was. I'd like to go back there. Just as, you, just as he who called you is holy, he says in verse 15, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. A whole new way to experience life. Not apart, but immersed in it. Immersed in it in a way that you actually experience God in the midst of it. So to their credit, these people embrace the message. How do we know? Because from this region, several generations removed, the greatest theologians uh, in history, basically, emerged. The descendants of these people were the people that wrote the Nicene Creed, which tells us that Jesus is fully God and fully man. Gregory of Nazianzus, Gregory of Nyssa, Theodosius, uh, two of these guys, Cyril and Methodius, relatives of these people, said, you know what? Everybody in Cappadocia, Pontus, Bithynia, Asia, uh, everybody knows Jesus now. Where else could we go? Cyril and Methodus said, I know. Let's go to that place way out there, all those crazy people that can't even read. Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's go there. They went to this place, massive amount of people, horrifically uh, violent people, but hungry spiritually people. And they said, hey, you people, we've come from, from the Greek-speaking world, a Roman province, uh, Cappadocia. We're here to tell you about Jesus. Who's Jesus? They, and they said, well, here's in his word is a description. We can't read. We don't have an alphabet. Ah, Cyril, Cyril said, I'll create an alphabet for you. I'll take some of the language. He, they spoke Greek. I'll take some of our language and some of your sounds. I'll make you, a, I'll make you an alphabet so you can have your own Bible. And the Russians said, thank you so much. There would be no Russian church. There'd be no Greek Orthodox church. There'd be, no, there'd be uh, most of the Roman Empire, as it faded, was replaced by these people. Constantine counted these as his people. So do you see where this is going? They were faithful to what God was doing in very difficult circumstances, and from being exiles and foreigners, they grew into what it meant to be God's elect. And since they, he goes on to say, since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. The word fear in English is inadequate to describe this sense of awe and wonder and reverence and high regard for what God was doing. You see, when, when we take him seriously today, it not only affects us beneficially today, you are influencing future generations. That's not grandiosity or wishful thinking. That's just the simple fact that there's a bigger narrative at play here, and you get to contribute to it. So, he goes on to say in, in the remaining uh, chapter, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without a blemish or defect. You couldn't buy yourself out of the fallen world, but Jesus is delivering you from it in the midst of it. Jesus came into the world to save it. So he says, he, uh, Peter says, Jesus was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. So your faith and hope are in God. 
Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart, for you have been born again. You've died to yourselves. You've been born again in Christ, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, a forever seed, through the living and enduring word of God. And so we see him wrapping up by this. For all people are like grass. All their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. The written word of God and the embodied word of God in Christ and now embodied in his people who reflect the glory and the hope that we have in Christ. See, in your suffering, you bear witness to Christ probably more eloquently than you do in your success and your accomplishments. Because people really pay attention to people who are handling the adversity of life in a great way. What is it about you that makes it possible for you to do this? Well, I have a hope that's bigger than my present circumstances. I don't like my present circumstances, but I'm glad that God is with me in them. That's my hope. And I do hope that they will change, but as they change, uh, I'm gonna be a deeper version of me to embrace perhaps the inevitable success that I might experience down the road. If you know how to handle suffering, I can guarantee you'll handle success way better. If you've never handled suffering, you will not know what to do with success. I tell you what happens with people who get success without learning how to suffer, they make everybody else suffer. Uh, and the fact is that life goes by faster than any of us like to think. Do you know, this is a really interesting fact, kind of depressing, 10,000 people a day turn 60. More depressing would be 10,000 people a day die at 59. That would be bad, you know. So what happens when a person, 10,000 people today are turning 60? Uh, they're getting all kinds of funny cards from people, you know, sarcastic cards. And some of those people are probably saying, man, where did 60 years go? I wish I could do it over again. Others are saying, wow. 60 years walking with Christ, man, have I learned a lot. What I thought I knew, thankfully, has been replaced by what I now know. Think about that. The power of being shaped by Christ for 60 years or the despair of having filled up your life for 60 years with nothing but you. And so for those 10,000 people turning 60 today, I would love to just say to them, you know what, whatever has happened in the last 60, what are you going to do with the next decade or two or three that you have? That's a big question, right? Every day counts. Make it count for Christ. Well, as I said, the theme here is, is, is navigating those rapids in life. What do you need for running life's rapids? A couple things. First, you need a good guide. You need a dependable boat, the right gear, and some essential skills, right? All of you who've gone, gone through a rapid know that, yeah, you need a boat, you need a guide, you need an oar, uh, maybe a helmet, a sense of what's up on the boat and, and, and those skills to get you through it. First step, get in the boat. Goes without saying. These people, see the multi-generational group here? Um, sitting in the boat on the beach, uh, as the instructor says, this is an oar. Here's how you hold it. You know, this is the boat. Here's how you stay in it. Here's what we're going to do when we hit these circumstances. Does it mean they really know how to navigate yet? No, but at least they've been oriented to some basic stuff. If Stay in the boat. If you fall out of the boat, hold on to your oar, and we'll get you back in the boat. So stay in the boat. Get back in the boat. I want to tell you a story. 
1979, uh, a race, was, a sailing race happened called the, the Fastnet Race. Fastnet is a massive rock in the Irish Sea. And the Fastnet Race has been run every two years since 1925. It's one of the most prestigious sailing events in the world. Transpac, uh, Fastnet Race. These are the biggies uh, that yachtsmen uh, look forward to being a part of. In 1979, all these people showed up in their beautiful yachts, 303 of them, massively beautiful boats, professional for the most part sailors, some amateurs, but even the amateurs uh, were probably pretty good sailors. <clears throat> they start on the Isle of Wight cows. They go around uh, into the Irish Sea from England, around Fastnet Rock. They come back to Plymouth. In this case, a storm of storms came up. Of the 303 boats that started, only 86 returned. Uh, 184 or something like that uh, gave up. Five of those sunk never to be found again. 75 of those boats, and these were, we were talking about expensive high-tech boats, were flipped upside down. Uh, five, uh, 19 people killed, 4,000 people called out to rescue uh, the survivors, uh, including the entire Irish Navy. Both boats went out uh, to help. And so, um, uh, lessons learned from the Fastnet race. It's still run to this day. And now it's sponsored by Rolex. Because you don't know how much time you've got, I guess. I don't know. I'm not sure exactly. I hadn't thought about that, but I'm not sure how much, you know, if Rolex has really thought this through completely, you know, your time's out, you know, going to the fast net. Buy the watch and pay it all in full right now. Lessons learned. Know your boat. Sounds obvious. But the problem with the fast net race in 1979 was that people didn't quite know what to do with their boat. Why? Uh, because they weren't expecting a storm. So expect storms. One of the things they learned was, uh, if you're in a storm like this, stay on your boat. Do not get off your boat. Even if it's turned upside down, you stay with your boat. They also learned that if your boat is still upright, turn into the wind. If you turn sideways to the wind, the waves will crush your boat. Or if you try to go downwind, it's going to catch up with you and, and shred your sails and, and, and take your mast off and ruin your boat. Everybody who turned, who just naturally turned into the wind, uh, they were among those 86 who made it. So it's called uh, heaving to or hoving to. The idea is just to turn so you're just slightly off the wind, and then you, you just let the, 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 the weather take you. In a sense, you're saying, I'm out of control, but I'm going to face the wind. And then wait for help. Big lessons. The lessons learned at FASA in 1979 have saved hundreds, maybe thousands of lives in every subsequent big ocean race. Because what they do is they say, these are the things we need to do. We need to know what our boat is up, capable of doing. We have to anticipate storms. We have to have the crew completely ready to deal with a storm. Uh, and then they have to know that, hey, somebody's going to come, come for us and we can find our way out of this. So why do, we, why, why do we care? And why is that a lesson for us? One, because the Lord is with you. Remember, he said, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. That's what the disciples learned on the Sea of Galilee. Peter's going, we're going to drown. And Jesus says, no, 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 I'm with you. Secondly, your identity is clear. You belong to Christ. Your experience of Christ puts you in a boat. It's an identity. In the midst of those horrifically difficult circumstances, these people who are exiles and foreigners said, you know, we're actually in a boat together. 
It's a boat that God has put together, and he is with us in this storm. And he's not only going to allow us to survive or navigate through the storm, he's going to allow us to pick up people out of the water as we go. We go from being victims, uh, and not out of anger and revenge becoming victimizers. We get to be a rescue crew in the midst of this storm. And so the third thing is our future is secure. Our future is secure. Because for us, he's with us in life, and he's with us after life. There's life after life for us. Do you believe in life after death? We say, actually, I believe in life in the middle of life and life after life. I believe in life. And nothing and no one can separate me from this love and this life that God himself gives me. And so think about this. Look around you. This is your boat. This is your boat. This is your boat. Don't get out of your boat. If you're going to get out of your boat, be sure you're getting into another boat. And be sure that that boat knows how to manage the boat and knows how to look around for people in the water. Because you become the hope of the world by being in Jesus' boat. Knowing how to navigate through the storm, trusting in him, and not just worrying about yourself, but thinking, hey, we're a, we're a team, and we can look for other people. We're going to look at that in the rest of this series uh, going through First Peter. But think about that. Uh, Christ is with you. Your identity is secure. Your identity is secure, and you have a future hope because your identity is secure in Christ. So, Lord Jesus, my prayer for me, for my brothers and sisters, is that as we put our eyes on you, we know in whom we put our hope. We know that you are with us in the face of life's greatest travails, trials, and temptations. That, Lord, you have put us in a place where not only can we trust in you and experience this marvelous inheritance you've given us, but grow in our capacity to receive it and understand it and use it wisely to honor and glorify you and bless people. Help us to realize, Lord, that we are not just victims, but we're people who are part of your rescue and redemption of this world. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Steve. This brings us to a time of tithes and offering for those who call LJCC their boat. We give back out of the blessings we've received. As the ushers come forward, if you have questions about any of the things before the service, the events, the membership class, please see me after the service. My name is Ian. Uh, let us pray. Lord, we just thank you so much for all you're doing here. Lord, help us to turn our eyes and heart to you and stay in that boat. We ask this all in your holy and precious name. Amen.
might feel like an exile or a foreigner, but you are God's elect. He has you in his grip. Because he has you in his grip and you are his elect, you bail, but you don't bail out. You're with him, and he is with you, and for you, and you in him is a majority. This is what the world needs, Christ in you, the hope of glory. So now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon us all, giving us everything we need to walk in newness and fullness of life with him one day at a time, both now and forevermore. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.